Welcome to the Million Vegan Grandmothers podcast. And today I have Gerard Bishop and Paul Pappen and myself are going to interview Gerard about a few things here today. So Gerard has a new paper coming out, a peer review uh, paper. And um, I mean, it's going to be undeniable what this is going to reveal. And we're also going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we're covering in our next convergence on the 27th and 28th of January with climate healers and the grandmothers on the six uh, planetary boundaries that have been transgressed. And Gerard's going to uh, speak a little bit on that, but we're going to put a little bit of a twist on that based on what our convergence is about. So our convergence is about healthy me, healthy planet, and making the connection between a healthy planet is a healthy human, and of course, healthy ecosystems and everything that goes along with that. So thank you, Gerard, for being here. And thank you, Paul. Yeah, thank you, Tammy. It's a great pleasure to, to join you. Um, by way of introduction, for those who haven't, who don't know me, um, I, I retired after about 40 years in government, federal and state. Uh, my job was monitoring deforestation for the last few decades. And uh, we witnessed industrial scale deforestation. So it opened my eyes to the impact that we humans are having on our planet and perhaps we can do better. And uh, that sort of led me here. Um, yeah, but um, tell me, as you say, yes, I've, I've just uh, finished a paper that we're looking, we're getting peer reviewed and published in a in a journal at the moment. Um, it it's um, rather unconventional. It's taken a uh, a different view, a consistent view of emissions from deforestation and from fossil fuels. And we found that the, since 1750, deforestation uh, and other emissions off the land have actually emitted twice as much carbon dioxide as fossil fuels. So uh, that plus the enormous amounts of methane that's uh, uh, produced by animal agriculture drives animal agriculture into the largest emitting category. So we use a, a few unconventional things, in, including not, uh, not emissions as such, but the effect of radiative forcing, that is the end result of the emissions, uh, which is being used by the IPCC these days uh, to, to more accurately represent uh, the effect of emissions. Can you so explain that we a use little a, bit for people that don't understand radiating forces? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, ra effective radiating force is the um, is, is what happens to uh, when the sun. Well, okay, what what causes global warming is the sun. <laughs> when it interacts with this tiny thin layer of atmosphere that's that's around our planet, and in that in that planet we've lived in the Goldilocks of zone for the last twenty uh, ten thousand years. And it's been not too hot, not too cold, just right. And the reason for that is because, um, and, and it's probably due to the guy, the self-regulating, and a lot of people believe that we, we self-regulate, the, 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 the biosphere has been self-regulating to keep the temperature in that zone. So uh, now we've perturbed it. We've messed it up. Uh, we've cut down half the trees or three trillion trees on the planet. And we've also released a, a lot of fossil fuel. Uh, greenhouse gases so um, we've really messed up but um, you know there, there's ways to fix that um, and and that's actually the very very positive message of this work that we've done um, it's looking at um, the warming from uh, emissions actually I won't get into the detail about effective radiative forcing because it's a bit too complex um, but uh, the end result is that it measures not only the the warming effect from that gas, but it measures it also measures the warming effect from other gases that are produced from that gas. In other words, for example, uh, methane is a, a classic example. When we release methane into the atmosphere, it it reacts with other uh, gases, and it forms ozone. Ozone is really good up in the stratosphere, but down at the surface, it's a it's a powerful greenhouse gas, and it also hurts our respiration and it hurts uh, plants. Uh, it's it's 
been said, it's suppressed about 20% of plant growth on the planet. So ozone's a big problem. And it's produced by methane. Methane also produces other uh, compounds, which then go on to produce, uh, to, to, to uh, uh, seed uh, clouds, very small aerosols. So, so you, and, and, and the greatest greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is actually water, <laughs> believe it or not, in the form of clouds. So high clouds, um, which are white, uh, reflect the, the sun. Low clouds or, or, or dark clouds are uh, absorbed. So um, th that, that's the most, the most difficult part of climate science has been figuring out how the clouds are affecting us. And, and, and that's what they've nailed now with this effective radiated forcing. And they're getting close. I mean, it's, you know, error bars like this, but they're getting better. And um, the, the, so the effective radiated force is a much better measure of the impact of our emission than just saying global warming potential, which is what we've accepted up until now. So, and there's lots of arguments over global warming potential. So we've sort of sidestepped those arguments and looked at, you know, what's, what is the warming and, and who's contributed to it? Uh, you know, who's contributed, how much methane, how much nitrous oxide, how much carbon dioxide, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm probably extended that way too long, but uh, that's the basis of the paper. And it's showing that the conventions around deforestation, where how we measure the carbon dioxide released by deforestation and other land uh, carbon dioxide emissions is wrong. We've, we measure it differently to the way we measure uh, fossil fuel carbon dioxide. So what the, our work has done is it made, it's made both consistent and we've measured both consistently to prove that um, meth, uh, deforestation emissions are actually three and a half times greater than uh, conventionally understood. And if you look back to 1750, that means that the three trillion, well, the, the trees that we've deforested have in fact caused more global warming than fossil fuels. So it's a, it's a bit of a breakthrough, but it's also a, a bit hard for some to accept. So uh, it's it's going to be a uh, it's going to be an effort to get it through peer review. I know it's good, but um, the, the work's really good, and we've had our own internal peer review team. Uh, that's the that's the others, if you like, the we, um, and 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 we. So we know it's it's good work, but it's unconventional. So it may take a bit of getting through, uh, getting accepted, yeah. and and when it is published. Uh, no doubt it will have a lot of kickback because there's industries out there uh, that are based around the fact that fossil fuels are the big baddie and uh, land use uh, emissions are trivial. They're, they're a side issue. This turns that on its head. Yeah. So that's the paper. <laughs> yeah. Well, ever since I've been involved in climate healers, this has been the big issue the big divide right there's there seems to be a mainstream embrace of this idea that fossil fuels are the are the the bad guy as you said and uh very little discussion of animal agriculture and you've provided a couple of uh possible explanations that's probably a combination of them uh for why that is one is maybe methodological the methods that have been used have have tended to overstate the effect of fossil fuels and maybe understate if they've been looked at at all the effect of methane and other gases uh, and, and factors related to animal agriculture. Another is uh, the, 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 the academic investment, right? A lot of a lot of academics and a lot of industries are banking on, have, have, have bet on the horse, the fossil fuel horse. Um, do you think at the, at this, at the beginning of, of this whole uh, climate change uh, movement that um, the the focus on fossil fuels was did have a, a more of a political dimension or what, was it really uh, scientific in its core this 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 the way that the um, the whole issue has evolved. Yeah, that that's a good question, and um, I, I I don't believe that there's been any sort of conspiracy. I 
I worked amongst climate scientists for decades, and these are very, very dedicated people. They don't get paid for what they are worth, and they they all their spare time is spent thinking about their work. So you get a lot of more, lot more work out of them than just nine to five. Um, and and their whole ethic is to the betterment of society, industry, um, the environment. Um, the the um, yeah yeah. So I I don't think there's a conspiracy. I th I think that um, how it came about was that um, the Earth or the biosphere, as they call it, that is the vegetation and the atmosphere and the oceans, that's seen as a self-correcting system. And up until 1780-odd, uh, it was. Um, um, we'd done an awful lot of deforestation up until 1750. And all of that carbon dioxide that was emitted was actually drawn down into huge reserves, mostly of peat, in a few places around the world. So the biosphere was actively working against that deforestation to store that carbon. And it was doing a fantastic job until about 1750. And that's coincidentally when we started burning fossil fuels. So the, the rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide has not been due to, it was coincident with fossil fuel burning, but it's not being totally caused by fossil fuels because there's this ongoing deforestation emissions and the growing and accelerating fossil fuel emissions. So it's the combination of the two that has that has caused the current warming. And um, as we spoke about earlier, the cooling emitted with fossil fuels has actually masked most of the warming from uh, carbon dioxide from fossil fuels. So we haven't seen that warming yet, but it's coming. And so how are those how are those um, those cooling gases being drawn down now? What what measures have been put in place to bring those down? Yeah, um, well, first of all, to explain them, that if you've ever been to a large industrial city, uh, particularly in Asia, I was in Beijing about 12 years ago, and the air is like smog. It's a white haze that just hangs over everything. And the, the big cities beside the industrial areas um, have this constant smog. And it's that's sulfur dioxide. Those aerosols actually are strongly reflective. They reflect the sun's radiation themselves and they form clouds which also reflect. And um, we've had this, this uh, uh, it's called global dimming. You may have heard that term before, but all the aerosols have, have, um, ha have dimmed the sky so that less sunlight's reaching the surface, so less sunlight is warming the surface. But now... Um, There've been massive cleanup campaigns. You, you might have mentioned that you might have heard the acid rain that was happening over Europe and North America. Well, uh, that's caused by uh, sulfur dioxide. So there have been massive efforts to clean up the smoke smokestacks of particularly coal-fired powerhouses, um, and that cleanup campaign has been very successful. It's it's only in Asia that you see these these smoky uh, hazy skies still. Um, so, so globally, and, and, and one of the biggest producers is the dirty fuel, the so-called bunker fuel that they use for international shipping. Uh, they're, they're huge diesel engines and they use the, the cheapest, uh, dirtiest fuel you can imagine. And, but they've been cleaning up their act as well. They were big emitters of sulfur dioxide. So, so now that all that uh, cleanup campaign is actually working, and and James Hansen, who's the, considered the, the the grandfather of climate science, he's recently uh, two months ago produced a paper uh, that said, look, all these cleanups are working, but what that's doing is removing the masking, the cooling of these aerosols, and so we can expect another half or one degree warming even. So uh, this is. Disastrous. This is why, this is why Salish Rao, as a as a systems engineer, recommends we phase down slowly fossil fuels 
but but stop the the uh, the, the deforestation so that we're we're not causing those emissions. And it, it, it that's just simple engineering that he's nailed, but other people haven't really seen that yet. Uh, so, but we will be seeing it, and there are indications now. There's a paper came out about a month ago that said that uh, that looked at the 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 um, the cooling emissions, and it said that look, we, we're doing a fantastic job at cleaning up the skies, but uh, this is dreadful for climate. Interesting, ironic. <laughs> yes, it is. So, so what that's going to do, of course, is it, it's if if we, I mean, decarbonisation is not happening at lightning speed, but it's happening pretty quickly, and our cleanup campaign of the of the, of the aerosols is happening pretty quickly. So, um, what that's going to do is it's going to cause a great deal more warming in near term in the in the in the next few decades and and if you look at what causes the most warming in the near term it's 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 methane methane is it in fact um if you look at the work done on uh, effective radiator forcing as the ipcc have done they find that 50 percent of current global warming has been caused by methane not the other gases 50%. That's one of the big reasons why animal agriculture has had such a big impact. But methane is, is, is a unique emission. It is the only way that we can actually reduce warming in the next decade, or two or three. It's the only way. Carbon dioxide is way too slow. So um, uh, what we're doing is we're... <laughs> We're dramatically increase, uh, decreasing our, our cooling. In other words, so the car carbon dioxide is going to come on strong. But the only way we can we can decrease the warming is methane, methane. So um, that's the one we that if if I were a systems engineer in charge of global uh, climate change fixits, I would target methane big time. Because that it, that is the big one. That is the big one. The other thing that's really really interesting is that our work on emissions um, before the the emissions from um, the biosphere from deforestation and the drawdown, both of those have been understated by three and a half times. So the the amount of um, the amount of carbon dioxide released when we deforest. And the amount of drawdown has been belittled. It's been totally misunderstood. So, but but knowing what we know now, um, the, the 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 world's forests. Okay, the the forests hold ninety percent of the above ground carbon. Okay, so forests are the thing. Not grasses. Not not savannas. Forests. So forests hold ninety percent. We've trashed. We've killed half the world's forests. So, but the remaining forests, this is unbelievable. The remaining forests have soaked up twice as much as all the forests used to hold years ago before we started. So half the world's forests are now storing twice as much as the as the original whole world's forest. And, and it's it's caused by a number of things, but the two biggest things is carbon dioxide fertilization. So there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, so the trees grow better. But it's also nitrogen fertilization. We've we've pumped up the nitrogen uh, through our um, uh, 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 creation of, of of nitrogen fertilizer. We literally pulled nitrogen out of there, but we've we've uh, created this nitrogen surplus, which is one of the planetary boundaries that you mentioned before. But that is also fertilizing the trees. So. So the world's forests now, they're, they're like, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger compared to the skinny guy before. Um, they're doing a huge job. In fact, the, the forests are sucking down 65% of all the, the current emissions. So the forests are doing way, way more than any light bulbs or, or solar panels or electric cars will ever do. So we... Our work recognises now 
the the gargantuan work that the trees are doing, the forests are doing. And and once this is recognised, we, we will then be in a position to say, right, um, this paddock we've got next door to us, we know how much it could sequester if we re, rewilded it, reforested it, let's do it. So um, to do this on a scale big enough to, to solve the climate, which we can, we will need to change our land use dramatically. And this is what Salish Rao has been talking about for a long time. 37% of the planet, by far the biggest land use, is devoted to animal grazing. So, so um, sorry, I've got a phone call. I'm going to let it go. <laughs> Can you hear that? No. 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 So animal grazing is, but that does that include um, grazing and their food growing? No, no, no. Okay. It's it's uh, it's purely animal grazing. But then you look at the that that's thirty seven percent of the ice free land. Then you look at uh, the next biggest land use, which is uh, uh, human land use, which is uh, cropping, and that's twelve percent of the ice free land. Now, half of that is for animal agriculture. So, and a quarter of that is for human human consumption. The rest is uh, cotton and fiber and, and biofuel. So um, what we're doing is we, we, we're producing from that land twice as much food for the animals as we're producing for ourselves. So the wastage in that is just amazing and and so we'll be able to get by globally by, by using less cropping area. And if we can rewild, revegetate the grazing, the world's grazing lands, which were 40% 40 forested in the past, going back, if we can do that, we will solve the biodiversity crisis with that much more habitat will solve the climate crisis. It will draw down all the excess we put up there and it will solve the um, the nitrogen crisis, which is the next biggie. Um, so all of these planetary boundaries, it, in fact, it's to me, the, the diet change scenario is so profoundly impactful on all of the facets of how we have trashed our planet. And it's not only that, it's also recoverable. Trees can grow again. We can't put the coal back in the ground, but we can grow more trees. It's reversible. You know, so now that we know the value of the, of the forests, um, if reversing that is, is, is more valuable. So, um, yes, we can do it. We, we have the, the power to do it, but we need a lot of land to do it in. And we need a, it's a massive scale operation um, to rewild 37% of the planet. Um, it, you look at all of, all of the uh, rewilding exercises that have, that have been done. And number one, what they, the, the most effective of all is that they start with some native vegetation, but they don't go planting on a, on a large scale. They build fences. And, and the reason they build fences is to keep the stock out, keep the animals out, because um, they're the ones that have been uh, keeping the country, as it were. Sheep have a sheep are, and goats. Are, the domestic animals, you're saying, right, Gerard? The domestic animals. Yes, to... that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but but sheep have this superpower. You know, as soon as a, a tree sprouts a leaf, bang, it's gone. So no trees will grow where there are sheep. And and so so there's a massive job to be done, um, fencing off and rewilding in chunks as we go. We've got to put new fences on and and uh, take the take the animals off the land, um, and that's a quick thing, by the way. Um, if if we, we, there's about eighty billion animals that humanity eats, or kills every year, most of them seventy five percent at chickens and if you stop that production that 75 percent of animals will be gone in five weeks bang if the consumption keeps going same with with pigs five months bang 
uh, gone. Cows, two or three years, bang, they're gone. So it's not as though we're going to have all these animals, what do we do with them? <laughs> it's going to take a few years. It's going to take a long time to, to actually uh, draw down like we want. But um, the animals will go when we stop artificially fertilising and, and creating those animals as we do now. So how will the, uh, if we if we see it as in terms of when we're talking, so again, we're, when we're talking about all the planetary boundaries, which for reforesting is a very big part of that, and we're talking about building fences so the so the uh, domesticated animals aren't grazing on that land. How about where do the where do the wild animals fit into this? Where 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 can they return? How do we we allow them to return into this land? Yes, um, that that's a good point. Um, we need to do our best to um, restore the ecosystems that were there before humanity got involved. That's never going to happen, of course, but there are some really good success stories of reintroduction of species, uh, particularly the apex predators. Uh, they, they've, they do a lot to control, as it were, all of the ecosystem. Um, you know, beavers uh, change the watercourses, change the growth of the trees. Um, so, so, yes, that, 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 that's a major part of it. It's rewilding, in my view, uh, it's not just about carbon. It's more about species diversity um, and creating, recreating those ecosystems. The, the reason we've had pandemics is that we've pushed, we've squeezed nature into such a small corner. And when you, when you stress wildlife, their viral load goes through the roof. This has been proved in many studies. So wildlife has been pushed into a corner by humanity. It's got no habitat, no place to call home, no place to, to rest. And so they're all stressed out, These the, the wildlife that we have at the moment. And that's where the viral load goes through the roof. And that's when you know some unlucky contact brings it into humanity and, and bang, bingo, pandemic. So if we can take a breath, Give the land back to nature. You know, that, that's not an easy task. That means uh, undoing all the stuff that humanity's done. And one of those is the, uh, is the, is the animals that we graze. The big, big thing, of course, is the animals that we graze. We, we've got about, uh, if you compare the, the original animals that grazed compared to the animals that we have now, it, it's about um, eight to one. So we've got eight times more grazing animals than there ever ever been naturally. So we've got to restore that balance. Uh, that's globally, you know, it depends on where you are. But um, in Australia, um, <laughs> in Australia, we don't have the uh, the large herbivores like you do over there. We have kangaroos, which are I love kangaroos. They're amazing. I've seen a kangaroo. At full flight, you know, these, these creatures run, they, they bound fast. I've seen a kangaroo uh, launch itself through a barbed wire, a four-strand barbed wire fence. You know, the gap's only about this much. And they just flatten themselves and they go straight through. So in, in other words, this is the reason why, why they have cows in the paddock and not kangaroos, because they can, they can herd cows. You can't herd kangaroos. <laughs> um, and that's that's another story, but um, there's probably more kangaroos now than there were before because we've created more um, grass for them to feed on. And don't the, the farmers complain about it? Yeah, sorry, we're, we're off track. But but getting back to your original original idea, um, yes, the 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 humans depend on nature. We are part of the web of life. Um, you've probably heard that that uh, that saying that if we lost the animals that the the insects that do the pollinating, humanity will die within a few um, years. Um, that's very true, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we depend on those insects. We depend on, for example, forests could not grow 
without fungi and bacteria in their roots. And the fungi, it's 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 a it's a process that they share. The, the, the tree does the photosynthesis and it gives the carbohydrates to the to the fungi and bacteria, and they love it, don't they? And then they go seeking the micronutrients that the tree needs. So um, that's how trees survive. If you planted a tree and there are no microbes in the in the soil, the tree would not do well at all. You probably experience this sometimes. But if in a in a in a in a forest environment, they share and share and share, and the fungi uh, uh, spread widely. And the trees spread widely. The trees they've they've discovered. There's ever there's, there's studies that show the trees communicate through their roots, and the trees communicate through the fungi as well. So um, if there's a tree that's stressed for whatever reason, the tree the other surrounding trees can actually share nutrients to get it back on its feet. Now isn't that amazing? So um, there wouldn't be forests if it weren't for fungi and bacteria. Um, there, there wouldn't be humans if it weren't for photosynthesis and plants. And, <laughs> and, and so we are so interconnected. We've got no idea. We might live in cities. Most of us do. And those cities might be push a button, lift and get to the top floor and the house plants are dead. You might see no nature or little of it. But we are so dependent on nature. If, if the food supply stopped to the city stopped, the cities would be an absolute nightmare. Um, you, you see the commotion that was caused in China when they when they, they had a hard shutdown and people couldn't get the food they wanted. They got some food, but not what they wanted, and and that was very very distressing. So um, we are so interconnected. We we've got no idea. People, you know, they call them tree huggers for a reason. You know, you you go into nature and you and you feel that nature. I'll give you one example. Um, I, I used to work, when I, when I was in my uh, 20s, early 20s, I used to work for the federal government, and our job was to map the Great Barrier Reef and to map the uh, mangroves that, that were, were on the coastal strip. Now, the coastal strip is 3,000 kilometres long, so it's, it's a big coastal strip, but... But in one particular island, it's the biggest offshore island in Australia. It's called Hinchinbrook Island. It's got a bay called Missionary Bay, and there's probably a dozen rivers running into that bay. Now, this is the biggest stand of mangroves in Australia. Okay, so um, we our job was to map that. Okay, so as a as a surveyor, that was my first job. We were we were doing transects within the mangroves. So we had the, the, the water height, that was our datum. And we, so we measured the height of the water down to the mud from in the mangrove. We used to do these transects from one creek to another. And, and in, in one particular area of Missionary Bay, there's two big creeks and the transects in between are just incredible. So we'd, we'd, we'd come in in a, in, a, in a rubber duck in our zodiac and we'd nose into the mangroves and tie, and tie on with, a, with enough rope so that when the tide dropped, it wouldn't be dangling. And then we'd get out of the boat in our um, overalls and, and boots and any, you know, skin protection, and we'd, and we'd scramble through into the mangroves to do our transect. Now, this is one stand of mangroves that it was just unforgettable. Um, you probably know the Rhizophora mangrove. It's a it's a mangrove that has prop roots. There lots of prop roots come out the side, not not buttress roots, but prop roots, and they go for about two or three meters up the up the trunk. Well, this stand of Rhizophora was just pure Rhizophora, and this stand um, had trunks that were you know about a foot uh, thick, big big mangroves, and so at ground level you see all these prop roots, but you climb up to the top of the prop roots and you look up and it just takes your breath away because these trees go up for about a hundred foot or more and and there's no branches and but at the top there's this dense dense canopy of green so that it's like being in a cathedral and and every word you speak even a whisper echoes through this this cathedral 
and and the stillness and the beauty and the awesomeness of this is something you never forget so that's that's a sort of experience of nature that very few people have but but i was lucky enough to have uh because i worked for the institute of marine science um and and that left me with uh an awe for nature and and if we can regain that awe if we can uh, understand that we are part of it now we are part of the ecosystem that those trees are so we can restore help them restore what we've trashed um then then this world will be such a different place uh, we've got to recalibrate our role in nature um there's a there's a list of things i i, I did this in in preparation nature provides ecosystem services and and there's a group of people in europe called the TWB the e, the uh, economics of ecosystems and biodiversity these are the guys who are trying to put a, a dollar value on um biodiversity and they what they do is they they value in dollar terms ecosystem services what are ecosystem services it's what nature does for us and the, here's a list they produce oxygen they produce food they take in carbon dioxide of course they produce fuel they produce medicines they purify water they mitigate flood they detoxify the soil they their aesthetic and spiritual and cultural values they pollinate uh, the, the the various animals um, which gives us food they recycle nutrients and of course the basis of all this is photosynthesis that miracle of nature that turns sunshine into food into into carbohydrates so if if you think of it that way all of us are sunshine you know, that's where we come from i mean it takes a few additives it takes water and carbon dioxide and nitrogen and a few other elements but um without the sunshine we wouldn't exist so there you go and and forests um carbon dioxide and oxygen water purification forests lock up toxins this is really interesting um the the, the reason why we've got lead poisoning for example near power stations is because the the coal that they're using to power those power stations comes from old vegetation now that vegetation um it, it drew in things from the atmosphere and the soil. It drew in the toxins. So, so trees and, and plants are detoxifying the land. Um, the, the, they're the uh, wetlands are the best way to uh, to uh, to, to uh, cleanse the water that flows off the land. So that's that's one big reason to keep uh, wetlands intact because they detoxify, even in horrible industrial toxins, they soak it up and hold it. So they hold it long enough, they get buried, becomes coal. We burn it, it goes back in the atmosphere. So these toxins, we're recirculating these toxins. And, and, and reforestation is actually pulling in these toxins. So the forests aren't just pulling in carbon dioxide, they're pulling in toxins, cleaning up the air for us. So, you know, that's that's a big part of it. Also, the forests create water cycles. You've probably heard of what's happening in the Amazon right now. They, they, they call it the river in the sky. The, the amount of water that flows downstream in the Amazon, there's an equal amount of water flows in the air above. And it's called the river in the sky. And it creates the rain that, create, that rains on the rest of Brazil that creates its incredibly productive agricultural system. So... If it weren't for the forest, you wouldn't have that rain. So rain, uh, forests create rain. We know that. that that's a scientifically established very solidly. So if you restore the forest, you restore the water cycles. It, it won't be, it won't, we won't have the extreme uh, water cycles that we have now. Uh, the, the dumps of rain. That are, <laughs> it's really funny. Not far from where I live, there's a town called Lismore, and Lismore is in a flood area, right? 
The mayor of Lismore is an amazing lady. She does a great job. And she said, she was interviewed one day and, and she said to the interviewer, you know, if these floods are one in a hundred year events, I must be 500 years old. <laughs> so, so in other words, the old measures of what flood and what rains happen are no longer valid. They're, they're out the window. That's what forests do. Forests can re-regulate all of that. So that's that's what they do. And these ecosystem services have been valued at $125 trillion a year. How about that? That's the carbon, that's the uh, water purification, that's the soil stabilization. They they stop. <laughs> this is what happened in China. Um, three decades ago, four decades ago, they had big, they, they cleared their country more or less. They had big rains and a lot of landslips, so much slid away because the, the trees were no longer holding the soil together. So after that, they decided, okay, we've got to fix this. And they embarked on a, a replanting, a, a revegetation campaign. And now no, they have planted, China has planted more trees than any other, than all other countries. Their planting programs, their reforestation programs are huge. Um, so they learned their lesson. <laughs> However, um, they're still importing a lot of grain from Brazil, which is causing deforestation in Brazil. So we won't talk about that. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's that's the value of forests. We've got no idea how valuable they are. And there's a there's a guy called um, uh, Schmachtenberger, I think his name is, um, Michael. Anyway, he he... I saw a short video of his where he says one tree is worth a trillion dollars. And he goes through all of those ecosystem services. Um, but he, he takes it even further. And he says that without the rain, you get crop failures. Without crop failures, you get uh, famine. And when you've got famine, you get social unrest. Social unrest leads to uh, conflict, which which leads to uh, uh, armed conflict. So so he equates trees with war, <laughs> and and he gives the link, and it's all very understandable. I mean, the, the link between that the the immigrants into Europe that caused so much social social unrest, and the and the uh, the drought that they had. The millennial drought that they had in the Middle East, in this in the Fertile Crescent, the the links between those are very clear, and it's been studied. So um, yes, trees are incredibly valuable. Um, trees in particular, but all ecosystems, including ocean and water ecosystems. We've been clearing the continental shelves just as we have the above ground. Um, every time I walk on the beach here, there's always some help washed up and that's because the trawlers <laughs> have smashed it and it's washed up so um yeah so uh, yeah so i think that puts trees in perspective yeah yeah the um you know i i have a literary background and so i'm i'm very interested in words and their effect and I've always found the word, well, not always, but I've recently begun to consider the word grazing land such a misnomer, so deceptive, because on the one hand, you've got cropping as if we're intentionally growing crops for animal feed, and as if grazing is just something that passively happens. The animals go into an existing grassland and graze peacefully. But, you know, I've seen the video that you you posted of of these chain, these these chains strung between uh, bulldozers pulling over trees, and then those trees are burned and reburned until they can actually plant, you know, whatever grass the the animals eat. And so, we're not talking about you know this thirty seven percent of grazing land. We're not talking about just like accidental grassland. We're talking about previous forest that has been decimated, that has been knocked down and burned, not even used. The wood's not even used; it's just burned into charcoal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to grow some grass for 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 animals. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to replace grazing, which sounds so poetic and passive, with some a word like cropping because it's much more intentional than that, much more transformative of the environment than it than it sounds. 
Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I love it. Um, it must be a better word. Um, I've always used grazing land. <laughs> yeah, it should be raising, R-A-Z-I-N-G, because you're flattening <laughs> yes. everything. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's a funny thing, our relationship with the land. I mean, my mother remarried when she was 80 years old, and she remarried her childhood sweetheart. And that guy was one of the major ones responsible for, for a lot of the early deforestation. He had a team of mainly Aboriginal people, uh, and they were and they were you know with the original tractors, track creeper crawler tractors, and the big trees they cut down. But um, yeah, he he uh, he did a lot of wood, uh, timber cutting, wood wood getting with the big forest, and then the the broad scale clearing in the end. But that attitude was acclaimed by. All sides. I mean, in those days, that he was doing the best for his family, the best for the community, the best for the country, the best for the world, feed the world. And Australia was feeding England during the war, uh, some. And also clothing it, our, our wool production, uh, they, they, they were getting a pound a pound uh, for wool back in the day, my mother tells me. Um, she lived in sheep country. Um, so, so, yeah, that that... That attitude to nature um, is is got to be totally turned on its head. We we've got to, you know, clearing the land was actually written into the contract. See, most of the land is government land. It's it's leased to the to the graziers. To, um, but um, part of the part of that uh, contract is that they must develop the land, and develop means keep the trees off. Mm-hmm. So they've got to re- clear and re-clear. Here's an interesting little snippet. I was thinking about how um, the, the mob I used to work with, they, they, they uh, see, what's been happening is the clearing rate is about 2,500 acres a day in that state of Australia. And um, what they've been doing is they, they more of the clearing these days is is, as they call it, deforestation it more of that is actually re-clearing so if it were cleared sometime in the past even if that was 50 years ago they're calling it re-clearing but but i was thinking about that and they and they so they downplay it they say only uh, the original forest is only this much you know uh, which is about a third at the moment or 40 percent but the re-clearing is really interesting because what's in the atmosphere now is about 70% of that carbon dioxide is actually fossil fuel carbon dioxide. So the, the plants that have been regrowing in recent decades have been absorbing fossil fuel carbon dioxide, mostly. So um, because that's what they're. So when you clear, when you re-clear, you're actually re-emitting the, the fossil fuel carbon dioxide. So you know that that sort of attitude towards clearing and re-clearing, we've got to totally rethink that. We've got to we've got to realize that each tree is so precious. Every stand of forest is what's going to save us, save our hide. And we can't do it in in one backyard. We've got to do it on a large scale. Um, it could be done for us, like nature could just take over. You look at Chernobyl. And uh, take away the people, take uh, the trees grow. So uh, that could happen. But um, what I'm wanting is that we come back to work with nature, go hand in hand with nature to restore the balance. We've just whacked it totally out of balance and we need to restore that. So um, hopefully we'll get there. Homeostasis is what we're shooting for right self-regulation and uh yeah. yeah which is obviously an important process within our own bodies just like it is within the planetary body yeah. Uh, yeah um so i i was wondering about the three planetary boundaries that haven't yet been transgressed how close are we uh to getting in trouble on that front and and how would 
you know, the world going plant-based um, maybe prevent that from happening? Yeah. Um, I'm struggling to remember what they were. I know one was... Um, uh, uh, What's, what's the term? It's pollution anyway, and it's mostly the, the plastic pollution. Um, I think that's the boundary that's just been overstepped. Mm -hmm. um, but there are there are a couple of others that... Um, oh, water? Oh, no, water's been overstepped now. Mm. Yeah, look, sorry, I, I can't answer those, but, but I do know that um, the, the, the boundaries that are most overstepped, which is... Um, biodiversity loss and nitrogen pollution, not climate, believe it or not, it comes next. So all three of those, in fact, more, because uh, land systems change, which is uh, deforestation, that, that will change. Water cycles, that will change. Um, so it, it, the, the diet uh, change can actually impact several of the planetary boundaries in one go. Um, it's it's the the impact is just profound, profound. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I like I like to think that people are going to sort of voluntarily go plant based before they have no choice. <laughs> is there a big difference between? I, I'm I'm assuming there is a big difference between people now voluntarily in large numbers going plant based versus getting to a point where it is so economically unfeasible to produce meat that uh that it's just not available except to the ultra rich i mean is it is there is there a a virtue and a benefit in uh, becoming plant-based now rather than waiting for market forces <laughs> to to enforce it yeah um absolutely and and actually it's already happening um when you there's research that shows when you get to a, a, a level of 25% of adopting a new idea, um, then it will be considered mainstream and the ones who haven't adopted that will be shamed into adopting. So um, that that will happen. I, I think it's inevitable. And and the the, the signs to me, the, the really interesting signs that you might take as a negative, but the fact that the... Um, the meat and dairy industries are kicking back so strongly means that they feel so threatened. And as you say, the economics are not stacking up anymore for, for dairy particularly, uh, but even meat, is, it's become a, it becoming a, a luxury. But, um, you know, when the, when the uh, subsidies are taken into account, uh, none of the producers would make money without those subsidies. In the UK and the Europe, uh, animal producers get half their income from government subsidies. Half their income. I mean, the, the, in Wales, they're they're wailing because if if sheep farmers didn't get uh, uh, government subsidies, they'd be making a loss on sheep production. So, you know, th there's that. There's also and 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 the 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 kickback from the industry is getting very targeted and very professional, and they're looking at you know carbon neutral beef and all this sort of thing, and people can see through that. I think um, it's it's a like it it's a um, if you want to believe that you'll believe it. If you if you question it, you know that that's becoming more mainstream, and and particularly I, I think. Social media has opened our eyes to accepting the narrative or questioning the narrative. And I, and I think most people have actually are leaning more to questioning now, um, which is a good, a good thing, I think. But, but to me, um, this, the signs are there. Um, it's, it's as though the industries have gone into defensive mode. They're not promoting uh, for how wonderful it is anymore, they've gone into defensive mode. Um, so, so that to me is a sign that that things are changing. And and you know the 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 waves we see of of even mainstream now, they're talking about animal agriculture. Well, the very first COP 
committee uh, in a conference of the parties of the, for the climate change had a day, <laughs> one day, one day on um, um, uh, uh, agriculture and land use. So, you know, that's a sign that we're getting there. The, the, uh, the industries, uh, the, the lobbyists, and if you look at the, the lobby uh, money that's being sprayed around, it's extraordinary at the moment. Um, you know, there's, there's more, um, yeah, but, but it's huge amounts of money are going into lobbying. But, but that I see as a desperation move. And, the, and that the trend will continue. And as the, there's the bloke who runs um, um, uh, Project Drawdown, Jonathan Foley, amazing guy, He's, he says that things happen very, very, very slowly and then all at once. Mm-hmm. So that's how I see it happening. And it's, it's the old exponential curve. If, if you're at the bottom of the curve, exponential curve, you look back, and it looks like nothing's happening. We haven't budged much from where we were, you know, 20 years ago. But if you look forward, it looks like a brick wall. And you and you think we'll never get there. But that's the trend. That's the exponential trend, which is which we are following, like a lot of these things. And as Salish pointed out, that same exponential trend is happening for biodiversity loss and for climate change. So I think climate change is going to be the thing that finally wakes people up. It won't be biodiversity loss, even though that's more drastic situation than climate, but it's going to impact us more and more and more. Right now, my home insurance has doubled because there's a lot of places flooded in my postcode. You know, that's going to hit more people. I'm, I'm... you know, and I'm I'm probably in the one percent. So, um, you know, many people will be affected by it. We still got living people living in their cars, homeless from floods and fires. And where do they come? I mean, I'm in a beautiful spot in the world. So, if you're going to be homeless in your car, where do you come? <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, the local authority aren't turfing them out, aren't sort of moving them on. Um, and, and there's community resources here, which are really good. But, um, yeah, it, all of us will be impacted more and more in the future. And sooner or later, we will realise we must take dramatic steps. We can't just waltz into the supermarket and look at all the glossy things that we can buy and think it doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. We'll have to be more discriminate um you know there's a, there's a, a, ruckus, a ruckus about palm oil which is seems to be in a lot of baked good these goods these days but um palm oil produces about seven percent of deforestation and we know that that uh grazing beef uh, produces at least half so you know that will finally come through uh that that sort of understanding so, uh, you know, as these things progress, and they're progressing rather quickly, in my view, um, Salish's 2026 is actually looking to me like a reasonable time. And people who are vegan now, for example, are not so special. In another couple of years, they're going to be mainstream. So um, you, you might feel good about yourself, but feel good that you're the first there. Um and and so yeah, that's that's going to be the future. It, we're not going to be special. We're, we're going to be mainstream. So, um, and it's not for do good. It's not for our, the good of the environment. It's for our survival. So um, that's that's the bottom line from where I sit. Well, thank you, Gerard, for all of this um, amazing information and truth telling. And, you know, I was quickly looking at the planetary boundaries, the ones that are left, but I think by the end of this year, they're all going to be transgressed anyway. So that doesn't matter. One of them, ocean acidification and the oceans went pretty acidic this year with all the bleaching and the heat that that has never happened before. So we do know that when things change, they change very slowly and then all at once. So 
we do believe, as Silesh says, that we will live in a vegan world, predominantly vegan world by 2026. And we will either come by choice or we will come kicking and screaming. So thank you for your time and your energy and your... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Tammy, for hosting this and Paul. It's been really, really good discussion. And uh, we need to have more of these discussions all around the world. But um, I believe this is brilliant. We're getting there. Great. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you, Paul. Thanks very much, Joe. Thank you. Thank you.